Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, Freddie Gray, Anthony Hill... The list of officer-involved deaths is long, and the death of a Tatiana Jefferson, killed when a Fort Worth police officer fired into her bedroom window, has revived questions about training law enforcement and consequences. Here in Georgia, former DeKalb County police officer Robert Olson is set to be sentenced on November 1st. He's been cleared of murder charges in the death of Anthony Hill, but convicted of four other charges. Well, the incidents keep on happening, and today we're exploring some of the efforts to stop that trend. Cedric Alexander was DeKalb County Director of Public Safety when Hill was killed there. He's now a consultant and leading advocate for police reform. Cedric, welcome. Thank you for having me. In the studio with me is Chris Stewart, a civil rights attorney who's represented several families of black men shot and killed by police. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Of course. Okay, Chris, revisiting the case quickly, DeKalb County Police Officer Robert Olson shot and killed Anthony Hill. This was 2015. Hill was a former airman who was having a mental health crisis at the time, and he was naked uh, at the time of his shooting. Olson was recently acquitted of murder in the case, but convicted on four lesser charges for which he could be sentenced to prison. So you're a lawyer. He's convicted of aggravated assault, violation of oath of office, and making false statements. What does that mean for Olson? Well, he can face up to, I believe, about 35 years. Um, He was found guilty for shooting um, the young man and then also for... uh, I think, lying later in his police report um, and then also for violating the use of force policy by the department. Um, So it's it's really a, a, you know, very locked down case for the civil suit that's going. um, But he can still face extreme time. Like what? What? what, Come November 1st, he could have got 35 years. Yeah. So it can actually get the same time as if he would have been found guilty of. The murder. felony murder charge, yeah. which he was, uh, he was, he two counts of felony murder charges there. Cedric, you have a doctoral degree in psychology. Now, what were you thinking back in 2015 when you found out a DeKalb County officer had shot and killed a man with mental health issues and definitely needs? Now, you may recollect during that time, I was also on President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. And our main primary, primary focus uh, and the charge we were given by President Obama at that time was to find ways in which we could build better relationships between police and community. And one thing that came out as a result of our findings uh, being on that task force is that it's, that it's important, and you'll see that in Georgia today, that any time you have an officer involved shooting, involved in death, is that you take that investigation from yourself and give it to an outside entity, i.e. Georgia Bureau investigation in this case, which removes you from it so that the public uh, will feel that a fair and impartial investigation is taking place. Well, Chris, one of the recommendations from the task force on 21st century policing is, and some municipalities have insisted on this, that police be equipped with body cameras. How has that changed the perspectives? People have to understand it's all in the details. I've reviewed countless police department policies, and they don't have rules on when you activate it, when you can turn it off. 
do you have to actually keep looking at these scenes? Some officers will turn away knowing that their body cam is on. So there are there's loopholes constantly, especially the use of force policies. There aren't rules all the time. They're written by lawyers and it's very vague. I had a the case with Walter Scott. Body cams were instituted after that. Right. When we demanded it from the governor and then it happened uh, with Gregory Towns, who I represented that was killed down here. East Point didn't have a taser policy and he was tasered to death about 20 times. So there's a policy. But what are the details? Right. And of course, that is a part of what Cedric is wanting to do. Training police differently. Community yes. policing, obviously, is a, has been a big move. Cedric Alexander, consultant and advocate for police reform, former president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Chris Stewart is also with us, a civil rights attorney with Robert Olson's sentencing set for November 1st. We're talking about efforts to uh, curb police-involved deaths. And Chris, the question, of course, the difficult question of why this keeps happening. So it's a white officer killing uh, a black person. Is this racism? I was asked that with Walter Scott when I took that case. and It was killed in South Carolina. That was the first question that I was asked at a press conference. And my answer then was, well, I don't know Michael Slager, so I can't comment on that. We hadn't researched him. We didn't know anything that had just happened. Um, So, you know, that that's impossible to say unless you know that officer, you know that officer's mindset. But what we do know is this constantly happens to African-Americans, particularly in the inner city. And that's a problem. Um, But that is a myriad of problems. Those communities are over-policed in some situations. They have the wrong officers working in those areas. Temperament checks has to be something that is vital when you're policing, especially in inner city areas. Um, And especially there are implicit biases. There are situations where officers will fire quicker because the person is a person of color. Um, And it is an implicit bias situation, which is why some departments do have implicit bias training. Um, But a lot of them don't. Cedric, you recently wrote an opinion piece when you questioned the mental health of police recruits themselves. Who is coming to get these jobs? The op-ed also touched on training, crisis intervention training, or CIT, now required part of DeKalb County Police Academy. Olson had gone through it, but he still reacted quickly and with deadly force. Is that a sign that the training failed? Let's take it to a much broader perspective than that. Three things I wrote in the most recent uh, CNN op-ed as it relates to the Antiana uh, Jefferson case in Fort Worth. And three things I pointed out in that op-ed is that police is going to have to recruit better. Who are we recruiting to become police officers? I need to know more than just their credit check, their driving record, their criminal behavior, if there's any. I need to know more of that person as to what are the ethics and their morals. How do they view diversity and those kinds of issues that are more salient to a very diverse world we live in today? That's number one. And we're not recruiting cowboys and cowgirls. We're recruiting guardians of a community. We're going to train them to protect themselves because it is a dangerous world out there. And that's in many communities. It's not just relegated to communities of color. Secondly, once we recruit, how do we train? We got to go beyond the shoot, don't shoot scenarios. We got to train far greater than what we have. And we're training not just in the academy, but post-academy training. 
do officers get enough training around de-escalation? And do they get more training around implicit bias? See, those words, see, see those classes, well, everybody said, well, we've done de-escalation training. We've done in, implicit bias training. That means nothing if it's not being reinforced by leadership from the top of the organization down to their first-line supervisor. So if I have a man or woman officer, male or female, that goes through de-escalation training, goes to implicit bias training, when I'm working with them as their boss, I want to see them apply those tools when they can apply them. In some cases, it will be appropriate, and in others, it may not be. But it has to be reinforced. Right. That's what I'm hearing from from Chris here, that the idea that, yes, there are ways of doing things, but they're not necessarily supervised. So, But Chris, this goes to another point here, that it seems a lot of departments across Georgia and the nation are facing difficulties attracting and hiring police officers. So there are vacancies, there's low pay in in police departments affecting the quality of people getting hired, never mind getting this extra training. How does that play out? I fully agree with what Cedric said. I've been preaching that if you want police brutality in those three things, how are police officers not one of the highest paid professions in this country when they, they're the only people that can take life, put you in jail for life and protect you all at once? I mean, it's insanity that the standards to become an officer aren't just like becoming a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, whatever it may be, uh, and that they aren't paid to that degree in America, the better pay, the higher quality you're going to get. I mean, that's just a fact, but it's purposely done where most police officers make less than teachers or less than a sanitation worker in some cities. It's insanity. Um, Secondly, most of these officers are allowed to bounce around. So when I get a case, first thing we look up is his background. He's worked at four different departments. Mm-hmm. Move from place to place. Because they can resign before they get fired or they can just bounce around. So, of course, if someone is bouncing around, they're problematic. But because departments need officers, they need bodies. So they overlook it. And then the guy kills someone. Or he has a myriad of problems with internal affairs. So you found that there are records for these Constantly, these, okay. every single situation. Or he has constant complaints about, oh, he punched me or this officer kicked me or whatever. And I've sat down with chiefs and I've told them, if you have an officer that is pushing the line a little bit, punching someone unnecessarily, going a little bit too far, they're going to end up killing someone. So you've got to fire them or stop them now. Oh, well, we need bodies. We've got to keep our officers. But it's going to just keep happening. What What are families asking for when it comes to finding justice for their loved ones? Of course, they're looking for an arrest, you know, because a loved one has been taken um, and they're looking for change. One of the biggest things that we always try and do is not just settle the civil case, but to make sure there was change. In Alton Sterling, another super viral shooting in Baton Rouge, right. we finally got a use of force policy instituted. They didn't have one before. So we try and find a, a way to create change in each situation so that there isn't another uh, Alton Sterling or Walter Scott. Well, Cedric, what do you think? I mean, I know it's a big question, something you've been spending a lot of time on, years uh, working with reforming police departments, but what do you think is the best sort of move forward to change the way that that relationship between law enforcement and citizens can reach some stability? 
You know, one of the biggest challenges in this country when it comes to police and community, these issues we're talking about are not new. They've been around since the inception of policing. It's just that doing Michael Brown in 2014, it was kind of a, a 21st century tipping point, if you will, of bringing all this to light and all everything that happened and came behind it. And But you have 18,000 police departments in this country. 18,000. And all that those 18,000, sometimes it's being done 18,000 different ways. Mm-hmm. There are some standards that are the same uh, based on post-training. But here again, the officers may get good training in the academy, but the challenge becomes how are they being supervised and mentored from that point on? But you have some great chiefs out there that are doing some magnificent things. Uh, the attorney talked about the case back in East Point. And I was there when they had that tasing incident, which was horrible. But you have new leadership there. You have a new uh, uh, chief there in uh, departments like East Point and Douglasville. I myself, over the last several months, I've been inside both sides of, of both of those departments doing leadership and implicit, explicit bias training. Leadership in those agencies play a key role not just in terms of talking about it, but actually exercising it and practicing it and doing it every day where it becomes a part of that culture of that organization. Cedric Alexander, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me today. That is former DeKalb County Police Chief and Public Safety Director Cedric Alexander, now a consultant who advocates for police reform, and Chris Stewart, who has represented families of many black men killed by police officers. Thank you, Chris, for being with us. My pleasure. Stay with us. GBB Politics reporter Stephen Fowler got a rare sit-down interview with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. You'll hear what he had to say when On Second Thought continues. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.